We return this morning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, a book which those of us who have been traveling through on this journey together with us know is concerned with the kingdom of David from start to finish. Perhaps something you didn't know and that you've discovered along the way is how much of David's kingdom and his reign was full and fraught with sin turmoil, and rebellion. His own son, Absalom, rises up against him and forces him to flee his capital city where he's built himself a house and where he's ruling and reigning. And now he's fleeing back into the wilderness where he spent the majority of his days in 1 Samuel. But as Absalom and his men pursued David out to the very outskirts, to the furthest regions of the kingdom, we felt the pinch we often feel in this world. It's the grief we experience when there seems to be no right choice. David wants to show mercy, but every time he gives Absalom a little bit more, Absalom uses that only to pursue after his father giving a little bit more ground, a little bit more mercy, Absalom just takes hold of it and uses it to rebel even more against his father. And yet, obviously, a father putting his own son to death is not going to be an option for David either. He wants to show mercy. He is hesitant to execute justice. David pinched between two bad options. You know, we're in an election year. A lot of elections feel this way. We must choose between two bad options, and we just try to pick the one we think will make do the least amount of damage. We come to 2 Samuel, and we see that David's general, a warrior by the name of Joab, who is actually David's nephew, so he's in the family as well. Joab is the man for these kind of unsavory decisions. He, in fact, seems to relish these opportunities. He is attracted to them like the mosquitoes in my backyard are attracted to my two-year-old Davis. He's drawn to them. He relishes them. He loves them. David, on the other hand, has always been a man who resists these lose-lose decisions. Most often we see him just choosing not to make a choice and leaving the decision in the hands of the Lord, unwilling to act, sometimes paralyzed by fear or sometimes by guilt and sometimes by godly mercy. Joab and David are what we would call foil characters. Foil characters are, are men or women who are best understood when they're placed side by side for the sake of comparison because they draw out each other's characteristics by contrast. And in 2 Samuel, Joab often plays the part of pure action. Pragmatism at its peak. A man who does what is necessary, though it's not necessarily right. Compassion, mercy, forgiveness, these are not words in Joab's vocabulary. 
In contrast to Joab, David plays the role in 2 Samuel of pure heart. Idealism at its peak. A man who wants to do what is right, whose decisions are guided by compassion and mercy and forgiveness, but whose own mercy often seems to prevent him from doing what is necessary. We saw this clash between Joab and David come to a climax in the death, or rather the execution, of David's own son, Absalom. When given the choice between mercy and justice, which are we supposed to choose? Must we choose? Ultimately, as we read this morning's story in 2 Samuel 19, we are presented with the divine dilemma. When God considers us fallen sinners, what must he choose? His mercy or his justice? Or must he choose? If you found 2 Samuel 19, why don't we stand together as we give our souls to listening and trusting in God's word. 2 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 1. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise. Go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not the commander of my army from now on, in place of Joab. 
and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So last week, reports of Absalom's death made their way to David, who was not on the battlefield, but had stayed behind at a nearby city. Reports making their way by the fleet-footed Ahimaaz and the Cushite servant to David, that Absalom, his son, was among the slain in battle. This morning's story, report makes its way from the city back into the battlefield, And Joab receives this news in verse 1. Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and he cried with a loud voice, Oh, Absalom, my son, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So the battlefield falls silent. And the men can hear a distant cry begin to echo through the forest. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. As David's men return from their fighting and for fighting for David's family and his honor, and they expect celebration and trumpets and a parade as they enter the city, and instead they are welcomed home by the cries of a distraught father. This morning, David is a picture, firstly, of unconditional mercy. Unconditional mercy. How is it that David is able to groan and weep and mourn over Absalom after everything that this young man had done against his father? He murdered David's oldest son, Amnon, heir to the throne. He was a two-faced traitor. He led all of the people whom David was supposed to shepherd to betray and overthrow their shepherd. He committed shameless acts against David's concubines. He led the people of Israel into battle against their own king, forcing brother to kill brother. He chased his father to the edge of the kingdom in cold blood. And in the end, this is what we hear over his deaths, the sobs of a father filled with unconditional mercy. Oh, Absalom, my son. This is my son. David's mercy has no conditions. No matter how many times his son sins against him, he remains merciful. King David's heart for Absalom reminds us of God's heart for us. 
His mercy is also unconditional. The psalmist reminds us, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, as a father shows compassion, mercy to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why did David love Absalom so? Why did he overlook everything that he had done and continue to have mercy? Who knows? Who can say anything other than, isn't that a father for you? That's just what fathers do. Why does our Heavenly Father love us so? After all we've done, sinners, wicked, rebellious, disobedient, why is His mercy unconditional toward us? Who will ever understand it other than to say, that's the Heavenly Father for you. That's just who He is. He groans over the death of sinners, even sinners like Absalom. Can you believe that? Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Lord says, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? If our Heavenly Father is a Father of unconditional mercy, then we as His children should be filled with that same mercy toward one another. Even Absalom, this story demonstrates to us, deserved to be mourned over. Christians should be grieved by all death because our God is. This past month, on September 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg passed away. We got to see what was inside of a lot of people's hearts on that afternoon. I wonder what happened in your heart the moment you heard the news. I can't tell you how shameful it was to see some professed Christians dancing over her grave and she wasn't even buried in it yet. Brothers and sisters, God's heart is moved by unconditional mercy. So should ours. There's a place for justice. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. We can rejoice certainly in the righteousness of God whenever it does triumph over evil, but to rejoice in death is never right for the Christian. Never. That is except the death of Jesus Christ. And even there, when we come to the cross, we don't glory in death, we glory in death defeated. We don't glory in a tomb, we glory in an empty tomb. It's death undone that makes us rejoice. It's groaning turned into rejoicing that makes us sing. It's suffering ended, sin abolished, mourned, mourning finished. That's what we long for. That's what's promised. That's what makes the gospel good news. Not that Jesus died, but that Jesus died and has been raised. That's what gives us great hope that one day the dwelling place of God will be with man and we will experience his unconditional mercy forevermore and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the day we long for. That's the day we rejoice in. 
Brothers and sisters, we must be a people of unconditional mercy because that is who our Heavenly Father is. But at this moment of grief, as David is pouring out his heart and this mercy is boiling out of him, overflowing, Joab enters. And while we have David here who's all heart, we have Joab over here who's all action. David representing mercy. Joab unrelenting justice. We have unconditional mercy. And then secondly, we see in Joab unrelenting justice. Listen to his speech again in verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Joab's callousness, Joab's expediency, even Joab's clear disobedience of David's command where he commanded them to show mercy to Absalom. Even all of this we can say is wrong of him, but we still cannot deny the truth of what he says. Absalom had to die. As much as David didn't want it, as much as he cried for mercy, it was either Absalom or David's family. It was either justice or mercy. It was either Absalom, his enemy, or his friends. It was either this rebel or his house. It was either Absalom or the entire kingdom. David was going to have to choose. He could not have both. Joab is the agent of ruthless, unrelenting justice, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, as Paul will say in Romans. David wants to show mercy, but he must also uphold justice. And Joab is saying, well, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. A kingdom is not going to stand if evil goes unpunished within its borders. That's what got David into trouble all the way back in chapter 13, when Amnon sinned against his sister, David did nothing. If this is true for David, how much more is this true for the Lord? As much as he may want to forgive all of our sins, as much as his heart may long to show unconditional mercy toward reckless, rebellious sinners like Absalom and like you and me, though his heart may long for it with all of the divine being of God, he also has to uphold his righteousness. He has to be perfectly just. When he says to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. If he does not put Adam and Eve to death, God proves to be a liar. And let me tell you, God telling lies would bring about a greater evil than any sin Adam and Eve could ever commit in this universe. 
GC, Satan would seem to have found a way to put the nature of God at odds with itself. And Absalom illustrates it perfectly this morning. On the one hand, David's nature, out of his mercy, is to want to extend forgiveness and mercy to Absalom no matter what he does, because he loves him dearly. On the other hand, David, if he's going to be a righteous king, has to put to death all rebels against his crown. To not punish evildoers, to not execute justice, Joab says, will actually bring about more evil in this kingdom than anything that's happened in the past. This is what Satan is trying to do. Put God into a catch-22. The Lord wants to have mercy on every last Absalom that has walked the face of this earth, even though we are wicked and sinful and we're using all of the resources he's given us to fight against him. But he also must be a just king. He cannot deny his own righteousness. He can't allow sin, transgression of his clear laws to go unpunished. So what is the Lord the king to do when his mercy and his justice seem to be placed at odds with one another? Joab and his justice cry out for the blood of Absalom, but David's heart cries out for mercy. What is David to do? What we see begin to unfold in verse 8 is the renewal of David's kingdom. And this new kingdom is founded on unshakable faith. David wants to show mercy. He knows that justice must be served. And the only way forward between mercy and justice is faith. Because guess what? David doesn't know the solution. He doesn't know the answer. Justice and mercy must be equally upheld in his kingdom, and he does not know how to do it. His unshakable faith is this. I cannot solve this. God must solve this. And guess what? I trust that God will one day solve this. We see David take three steps of unshakable faith as we finish this morning. So we we're told that all of Israel is scattered at, from the battlefield, and the tribes, they begin to argue amongst themselves, as the tribes of Israel tend to do. And they're arguing, well, we, you know, we, we overthrew this king, and he was good, but then we were following Absalom. Now he's dead. What are we supposed to do? We can't bring back the guy that we betrayed. So what are we going to do? Who's king now? What is David's first act of faith? Well, first, David extends corporate forgiveness, meaning he extends faith to the people as a whole, a free pass to everybody. He's not going to hold any sin against them, even though they rebelled against him as one man. Look at verse 11. The king sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? He sends a private message to his own family. That family of two-faced backstabbers. 
And he says, essentially, the past is the past. All is forgiven. I'll come back if you want me to. The second act of faith, David extends not just corporate forgiveness, but then he, he extends personal forgiveness. Who does he forgive personally? Look at verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Maybe you didn't catch this in the previous chapter, but Amasa is also David's nephew. Absalom made Amasa the general of the Israelite army to chase down and kill David. David is personally extending forgiveness to the right-hand man of his son Absalom. His forgiveness is not just merely an abstract, it is concrete. He is placing public enemy number two as head over his own army. This isn't just an act of good faith, it's an act of faith. Trusting God is going to heal the kingdom because this is a family feud. And David says, you know what, my son's dead. I can't extend forgiveness to him. Whoever's next up, that's the man I'm going to forgive. I can tell you one man who's not going to be happy with David's act of personal forgiveness. Can you guess? Joab. <laughs> Joab, the man of unrelenting justice. No mercy. David is trusting somehow justice and mercy can both reign in his kingdom. He's not sure how, but it's going to happen. God alone knows how. The healing of the kingdom of God may mean very personal sacrifice for you. Jesus is a king who makes his enemies his friends. And that may mean that you have to offer very costly personal forgiveness to someone in your life. Are you prepared for that? Let me tell you who wasn't prepared for that. It's Joab. Are you like him? Are you prepared to forgive the person who has cut you the deepest? See, David takes a first step of forgiveness and offering corporate forgiveness. A second step of faith and offering personal forgiveness to a man who has wounded him deeply. But David's final act of unshakable faith is in verses 14 and 15. David goes down to the river. Look at verse 14 with me. He swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king. Return. Come on back, David. You and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Unlike Absalom, David doesn't force himself on the people. He is a king freely chosen. We hear it in the people. Come on back, David. We're ready. We want you to come back, you and your servants. And we have this beautiful scene where we have King David on one side of the river. And we have all these repentant sinners on the other side of the river. And they come down into the Jordan River together. It's a, it's a renewal ceremony. These 
repentant sinners receiving back the king that they've put to death, that they've betrayed, they've abandoned. And he gives himself back to them as a king of mercy and of justice. He gives himself to them as an act of forgiveness. And we have this sort of vow renewal service between flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. We're reminded of Samuel's words in 1 Samuel 11. Come, let us go down to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. It's a remarriage ceremony. It's incredible. And yet David heads back to Jerusalem with no clear solution to the problem. He still doesn't know how you balance mercy and justice in his kingdom. How can he be a king of unconditional mercy, but also a king of unrelenting justice? And yet he steps into the waters of the Jordan and passes through with an unshakable faith. Not that he has the solution, but that God does. How could David have known that in that very act of setting foot in the Jordan River that he was himself becoming a foreshadowing of the solution of God? How will God prove himself both unconditionally merciful and unrelentingly just? Well, we see the solution when he sets foot in that same Jordan River. All four of the gospel writers make sure we don't miss this scene. This kingdom renewal, this vow renewal ceremony between the king, a king of sinners, and he is baptized among them. I wonder this morning whether you are among those people. When we go down to the river, it's a declaration of unshakable faith. God himself has solved this. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, God has provided the solution. We, by faith, are united with him in a death like his. We trust one day we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Those who put their unshakable faith in our God go down to the river and meet Jesus there in the waters of baptism. I wonder what you're waiting for. The king of unconditional mercy and unrelenting justice is waiting at the Jordan River to meet you. Will you not go down to him? Will you not say, I know I betrayed you. I know I, I ran away, but come back. I want you to be my king again. We can be a people of unconditional mercy and unrelenting justice, and it happens by faith. Faith in a God who has proven to be both perfectly merciful and perfectly just. We don't have to listen to the voice in our head that says, it's either your friends or your enemies. You can't have both. It's either justice or mercy. You can't have both. It's either eating with sinners or being kings in the kingdom. You can't have both. Jesus shows us that is a false, false dichotomy. He is holy, unstained by sin, and yet he shares tables with sinners and tax collectors. He never breaks a single law of God, keeps them all perfectly, and yet he welcomes the lawless into his kingdom. How? The cross. The cross is where the mercy and justice of God 
come together perfectly. It is the key that unlocks this door, the solution to the riddle, the meaning of this parable we read this morning. How do we solve this? The cross. How can God be both merciful to sinners and execute justice against their sins? How can he both let sinners live and put their sins to death? The cross. In his unconditional mercy, God suffered under his own unrelenting justice for the sake of sinful Absaloms like you and me. We look at the cross and we see our place. We see the tree and we say, that's reserved for me. That's where I should hang for my sins. And yet, as we draw close to it, we see a notice posted there and a record of all of our sins and it says, paid in full. The justice of God satisfied by a merciful God who died in our place. And so the question remains for us, will we have this man, this perfect king of justice and mercy, will we have him as our king? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the solution. We thank you for the cross. We will never understand or fully comprehend the mercy and justice we see meeting there. We thank you, God, that there is no problem too big for you to solve. We pray, help us to be people of justice and mercy like you. Help us to take steps forward in faith and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.